from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. From the foods of the future, we actually formulated corn tortillas using cricket protein. To building on the successes of the past. We've really broken through, I think, in the world of what texture can be in apples. And improving profit on the farm now. What we are trying to do here is developing a novel, renewable, thermoset bioresin from soybean oil. We dive into the latest research going on in the ag world and its impacts on the farm right now on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. While harvest is coming to an end, research is ramping up at many of our land-grant colleges across the country. Now, in the past few months, we've gotten the chance to check out the latest research underway that could dramatically impact what we grow, how we grow it, and what we eat. We start our tour this morning at a new lab where researchers are working to create new products out of the things we grow that go beyond food. Agnes Michelle Rook takes us on a tour of Poets Bioproducts Center in South Dakota State University. Researchers here at South Dakota State University are developing the next generation of bioproducts that will replace petroleum-based products and provide functional solutions. Current project we are working on is adding value to the soybean, soybean oil. The three-year study is being funded in part by the South Dakota Soybean Checkoff to convert this renewable soy-based feedstock into an epoxy that can replace petroleum-based resins. What we are trying to do here is developing a novel, renewable, thermoset bioresin from soybean oil. Dr. Muthu says soybean oil has unique properties which make it a good thermoset resin, which can withstand high heat of 600 to 700 degrees Celsius. These bioresins will not melt in the high temperatures. They will have the same structure, so application is very, very unique, and it has a high value. In fact, these soy-based bioresins can be used in various products consumers use every day. Any medical applications where they have sterilization process, um, automobiles, um, airplanes. Maggie Hoff is a senior agriculture and biosystems engineering major at SDSU and has been working on the project for the last year. Hoff says she's excited to work on a greener, renewable alternative to plastics and other product materials that are in high demand by consumers. We only have so much petroleum and other uh, products like that, that are like fossil fuels, I guess, that we are going to run out someday. It won't be soon necessarily, but we need to start working on a solution before we run out. Long before the push for sustainable products, South Dakota farmers like David Iverson were looking for new uses for soybean oil beyond cooking oil because it's low value anchored soybean prices. But today, with the push for green products and fuels like renewable diesel, the script has flipped. Companies want to have a, a green portfolio and to be sustainable. And so in agriculture, if we can help provide the opportunities for, for companies to, to meet their goals and uh, benefit us as well, it, uh, it's great for the whole country. Many soybean-based products have already been commercialized, like BioTurf and Pore Shield, which extends the life of roads. But Muthu says they've just scratched the surface when it comes to agriculture providing green, economical solutions. I think bioproducts is a new space where there's a lot of opportunities available. A lot of those products can be either from agriculture, if it's uh, corn, soybeans, wheat stubble, just anything used in agriculture, if we can add value 
to any part of, of the plant or the, the residue or any part of that that will be a benefit. Hi, thanks, Michelle. Just like human DNA, the corn genome is extremely complex. But as Farm Journal's Tyne Morgan reports, University of Nebraska researchers have unlocked the code, and it could change the game for plant breeding and for farmers. These fields are unlocking the future. If you ask any farmer, I think they will tell you the three things they care about are yield, yield, and yield, and that is not going to change. That's going to be the, the primary focus. But to boost yields, James Schnabel, professor of agronomy at the University of Nebraska, first had to finish a job that started back in 2007. They got a draft of the easy parts of the corn genome that was published in, in 2009. But that left a lot of complex, repetitive parts of the genome that just are hard to put together. That was at Iowa State. He says mapping the corn genome is like putting together the sky in a puzzle. The pieces all look the same, and you have to figure out which ones are missing and where they all go. The most difficult part was a lot of those holes are just the same piece, uh, same DNA sequence repeated over and over and over again. And so that's why I like this analogy to putting together a puzzle. If you just have the, the same colored puzzle piece over and over and over again, all you can do is try one after another which pieces fit into the other. And that's really what we had to do to fill in some of those biggest holes. Schnabel collaborated with folks at Iowa State. It was led, though, by a team at the China Agricultural University. With the latest technology, it allowed the researchers to sequence much longer pieces of DNA. And with that, they discovered the missing pieces, mapping the entire corn genome. When uh, the first version of the corn genome was sequenced, individual DNA sequences that we could read were only maybe 1,000, 2,000 letters long. Now we're able to sequence pieces 20, 30, 40,000 base pairs long, uh, which is why we were able to successfully fill in all, all those last missing holes. With the latest DNA sequencing technologies, along with genetic and physical maps, the team then got to work sequencing the corn genome with the goal of answering lingering questions about corn. We still do not have good uh, technologies for figuring out which corn hybrids are going to perform in which environments without actually testing them. We need to be doing a better job of this because the Nebraska of 2040 and the Nebraska of 2030 is very different from the Nebraska of 2023, and we need to be developing corn hybrids today that are going to thrive in farmers' fields in the Nebraska of 2030. Schnabel says knowing the entire sequence of the corn genome allows researchers to make better decisions early on on which hybrids have the most potential. The difference is we can make better decisions early on about which varieties have promise, which ones should be moving through that pipeline, based not on how the plants are performing in the field today, but how we think the plants will perform in the fields of 2030, when there's going to be less nitrogen, less water, and different growing seasons uh, than the ones that we are working with today. The team then trials that breeding here, as well as across Nebraska and Iowa. It allows them to discover which genes control performance in a wide variety of soils and environments. And the final version of mapping the entire human genome happened only a few months before Schnabel and team mapped the corn genome. We're catching up to the cutting edge in corn, and I like it. All right, thanks, Ty. Well, coming up, we turn our focus back to the markets, and Michelle Rook takes a look at what traders are watching as we close out November. And later, we head into the lab to do a little taste testing to see what could be the future food products of tomorrow in the country. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. into the end of November, but what will the markets be watching as we close out the month and the year? Agnes Michelle Rook has a look ahead in Markets Now. 
Welcome to Markets Now. I'm Michelle Rourke with Ellison Thompson of The Money Farm. Ellison, let's talk about some post-harvest marketing strategies. First on soybeans, are you looking at that market any different this year just because we are kind of in a South American weather market? We are definitely in a South American weather market. We definitely have some potential to keep this market moving higher. Um, you know, unfortunately, though, when guys were moving from the November to January contract, there was we are seeing carry build, um, which isn't normal or something we haven't seen in a couple of years. So guys aren't necessarily used to that that thinking um, when we're talking about rolling contracts. So some guys going into the new year here have already made the sale um, in the cash market to avoid those rolling fees while some guys are sitting on the January contracts right now. Either way, I still like being long going into the new year. So we've actually been reowning a lot of those sales um, from, from fall harvest. So I recommend just going straight in on the futures on January. Again, we're seeing a lot of good strength here. Is the corn strategy any different in a way of carrying that market too? Yeah, you know, there too, we're kind of waiting on a weather market with South America, and there's definitely potential there. Um, maybe not necessarily the same as soybeans right now um, to, 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 to necessarily see a large rally in the futures. It's been a slow grind higher. Um, so with that, you know, there is obviously risk involved with buying the futures back. So if you want to still stay long, there are a lot of different option strategies out there. We've been looking at May calls, $5. They're only 10 cents out of the money at this point. And they're roughly about 15 cents. That keeps you long through the end of February. So if we are going to see a weather market in South America, we'll likely see it by then affecting corn prices, which makes it a good strategy. And what about wheat? Um, it feels like uh, we should have a rally at some point. How do we take advantage of it? Yeah, there too. I do think that we have the potential to see a decent rally there as well. And with us sitting on two-year lows, I think it's a good buy. So we've been actually buying, um, especially for Minneapolis, been buying those March contracts, um, just jumping right straight into the futures. Options are obviously very thin. On Minneapolis wheat, you could buy some options in both KC and Chicago if you were interested. Um, but there too, they haven't necessarily been seeing um, the markets work in tandem either. Um, we've seen some really good support on Minneapolis week compared to the other two just because of some better demand. So um, just know your risk, but there's plenty of options out there. Thanks for joining us, Allison Thompson with The Money Farm and with that more Ag Day coming up. Ag Day is sponsored by Germinator Steel Closing Wheels. Perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order your Germinator Closing Wheels today. Holiday time is the perfect time to bake an apple pie. Researchers at the University of Minnesota are on a quest to find the next best apple variety. And as Farm Journal Stein Morgan reports, we have these researchers to thank for a very popular apple variety today. The other advantage in those small Delightful apples that are both appealing and delicious. That's exactly what you'll find at the University of Minnesota this time of year. Our whole goal in all of this is to give the consumer uh, an exceptional eating experience. Not an okay eating experience, not even a maybe okay eating experience, but there better be some wow in it somewhere. It's a product of more than 115 years of work and research. But in the late 1800s, growers demanded change. A group of would-be apple farmers uh, went to the state legislature, asked to have funding for a program for the University of Minnesota, and that's when we were born. In the 115 years since, the endgame is no longer just survival. 
but now it's also taste. It didn't matter how good the apple was, how pretty it was, how big it was. If it wouldn't survive the winters, it didn't count. That has not gone away, but our genetics have evolved to the point uh, that we don't have to worry about it every single cross. We've really broken through, I think, in the world of what texture can be in apples. One of the most famous apple varieties born out of this research here is one that is known around the globe. The one that probably moved us uh, to the forefront uh, locally, nationally, and internationally was Honeycrisp. And that really broke new ground. We introduced that in 1991. Bedford says the Honeycrisp apple took 31 years to create. That's from breeding until they introduced it commercially. But then it took decades longer to take the apple industry by storm. When you bite into an apple like a Honeycrisp, it cracks in your mouth. The juice flows. You almost need to hang over a sink or something, maybe have a towel nearby. Uh, it's an explosion in your mouth. And that now has set the bar for that term, at least for us. At any given time, the apple breeding program here at the University of Minnesota has 20,000 to 25,000 apple trees in various stages of evaluation from a breeding program that's quite robust. Decades of work and more taste tests than even Bedford can count. But in the end, the goal is to create an unforgettable experience and to make sure there truly are no bad apples in the bunch. All right, thanks time. Well, coming up, the dairy industry is leading the charge to cut methane emissions. We'll see the latest research being done at the University of Illinois that focuses on fermentation. Next. Ag Day is brought to you by Lamar's Toy Store, the largest and most diversified farm toy store in the U.S. They have new and old and do restorations and customizations too. You need to see it to believe it. Visit LamarsToyStore.com or call us at 712 546-4305. The U.S. and the European Union, along with more than 100 countries, have made a pledge to collectively reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. Now, while fossil fuels are responsible for the majority of those emissions, the livestock industry is also facing a tall task. And as Farm Journal's Tyne Morgan tells us, researchers at the University of Illinois want to make sure what might be right for the environment is also right for cattle. Headline after headline, methane emissions from cows are a growing point of contention. 90 uh, plus percent of the methane that come from ruminants is all going to be eructated. Um, and so that's going to come out in a belch. Uh, and so that's where it's all coming out the front end. Those emissions come from fermentation. All the fermentations on the front end. Which is actually an important part of how cattle digest what they're eating. Methane is really an important end product of rumen fermentation. It actually removes um, hydrogen ions, and so that helps fermentation continue. So while it's good for the bacteria, it's not necessarily great from the animal standpoint because it's just a loss of energy. And so with that, we're trying to reduce that while still um, proceeding with ruminal fermentation and helping the animals continue to grow. Josh McCann, an assistant professor here in the Animal Science Department at the University of Illinois, along with U of I's Dr. Rod Mackey, are leading the charge to reduce methane emissions from ruminants like beef and dairy cattle. What we're working on is we're trying to make sure the hydrogen that gets can kind of accumulate when we're reducing methane that we can capture that hydrogen for productive purposes um, and to help animals grow faster and be more productive. Through a three-year, $3.2 million project, University of Illinois researchers, along with an international team, are trying to uncover answers to not only help reduce the emissions, but also help boost production in cattle. 
We have a lot of feed additives that are getting developed now that are being developed to reduce methane. The problem with those is they don't really have any animal benefits. They have a, maybe a sustainability or an environmental benefit, but they're not having an animal benefit. Um, and so we need to kind of optimize and kind of start to manipulate a little bit some of the other pathways within the rumen and that fermentation process so that we can capture that energy for productive purposes. By optimizing the fermentation that happens within a cattle's stomach, the researchers want to find out if an improvement in fermentation can also help animals grow faster and be more productive. All of those processes are happening within the rumen, so all of ruminant fermentation is going to happen. With the first phase of the grant focusing on understanding the fermentation pathways happening inside the rumen, to the next phase of moving into more experiments, researchers hope what they uncover here will ultimately fuel improvements around the globe. We want to bridge the gap of knowledge where we, we kind of now understand how we can reduce methane, but we want to unlock that gap that's going to allow that to translate to a benefit on the farm for producers and in animal performance so we can continue to raise livestock in a sustainable and effective way as a great source of food. Where do all those new food products and flavors originate? Many start in a lab. We'll take you to one where taste testers are hard at work next. between farm and food is a close one and just because our agricultural producers raise a crop doesn't necessarily mean it's pleasant to eat. While at Purdue University, I recently got to see firsthand how researchers are helping food companies make sure what they're serving is a touchdown. Perfectly palatable potatoes. We're going to ask about the textural properties of the french fries, the crispiness, the juiciness, the appearance, the aroma, the flavor. Purdue food scientist Dr. Andrea Lisiaga runs the Sensory Evaluation Laboratory, where the goal is finding out how consumers feel about their food based on the five senses. By using the senses, then we can determine how much people will like or dislike a particular food product or the intensity of a particular attribute within the food. Preferences that go beyond how food looks or even tastes. We tend to think that the flavor of the food is going to be the most important attribute. But as science has shown, as sensory science, we have learned that actually texture plays a very important role in the acceptability of a food product. Today's French fry taste test is just one example of the research they do for food companies in pursuit of product improvements and new food introductions. So knowing how that food tastes, how it smells, how it feels in our mouth as we're masticating is extremely important for any food product, no matter how nutritious it is or how uh, novel it is or uh, unique. And they've tested plenty of unique products, from plant-based meats... To actually see these new products as they were being developed and how they resembled real meat. It was very unique to us at that time because we have never seen something like that before. To insect fortified foods. We actually formulated corn tortillas using cricket protein. An emerging protein possibility as the planet races toward 8 billion people. Student and lab hand Ella Hildebrand is discovering a lot of new things as she pursues a food science degree. This is an area of food science that I wasn't very familiar with coming into college. 
Um, so just my exposure to it here has definitely opened my eyes to all the different areas that food science touches. As the quest for food perfection continues, this team in the colorful coats. We wear a lab coat that reflects that we're in a food, food friendly lab where you can actually get to eat what you work with. <laughs> we'll keep testing and gathering data one bite at a time. Come and try the sensory lab. You will get a gift card at the end of the test. <laughs> and that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure you guys to tune in. From all of us here at Ag Day, I'm Cody Griffiths. Have a great day.